Dr. Gordon T. Smith has been a friend of our church family uh, for multiple years. He's been here several times to, uh, to, to speak, to teach, has had his impact on, on us, on me, certainly, if no one else. Uh, but by way of introduction, he came to Ambrose University the fall of uh, 2012. Uh, he'd uh, previously been nine years as the executive director for Resource Leadership International. And then prior to that, he had been the academic dean of Regent College in Vancouver. Um, he uh, has written many books. Uh, among them, the first that I'd read was The Voice of Jesus, which some of our intercessory team have read with me. Uh, the Holy Meal, we're going to celebrate that together this morning. Most recently, Institutional Intelligence. And I think uh, we've got some of his books at the uh, table in the lobby if you're uh, wanting to inquire about those. Uh, Dr. Smith is uh, married to Joella, and they have two adult sons and six grandkids. Um, Gordon, thank you for being here. Please come and open scripture for us. that. I'm deeply honored to be in your company, particularly on such a special occasion as this, as you celebrate this spectacular space. I walked in and I was just immediately struck by the amount of light, and I cannot commend you strongly enough to say, may our spaces of worship be infused with light. May God's grace be with you, not just today, but in the coming months, in years, as God does God's unique work in the company in the city of Okotoks, but in particular through and with this congregation. And I'm particularly privileged today to speak on a topic that calls us to step back, that at this time in the life, work, and history of Okotoks Alliance Church, you would be asking the question, and if I can contribute to that conversation, so much the better, that you'd be asking the question, what on earth is God doing, or more particularly, what on earth is the Spirit doing in our time, and in this place. And to ask that question with three answers. One answer is, what does it mean for me, personally and individually? That is, it seems to me, to ask the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing, and what implications does that have for me? Second, to also ask that question, of course, for a congregation such as this one. What on earth is the Spirit doing, and what does it mean for, an inst- for a community of faith such as this one, Okotoks Alliance Church? and respond to that question collectively. And then thirdly, we are asking that question as Ambrose University. We ask it all the time. What on earth is the Spirit doing, and what does it mean for a university such as Ambrose University, including our School of Ministry and our Theological Seminary? And what I can assure you of is we're asking that question in dialogue and in conversation with you as we seek to be all that God has called us to be as an institution here, shared here in southern Alberta with you, seeking to do what God is calling us to do. And when we ask the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing, we do need to turn to the Scriptures. We do need to see how the Scriptures can guide us, both in making that call, making that discernment, what is the Spirit doing, and in guiding us in our response. And the text to which I would like to invite you this morning is the words of the Gospel writer Luke, who writes also the book of Acts. The words of Luke that are found in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. If you have your smartphones, I invite you to turn with me there to the text. Or you'll find it also on the worship folder that was distributed to you as you came in this morning. You'll find it there. There's a page that has kind of sermon notes. And at the bottom of that page, you'll find it on this sheet of paper. It says at the top, quite sure it says sermon notes, sermon notes. It says sermon notes. At the bottom of the text, I think it should have been at the top, but it's at the bottom is the text that I'm preaching. That is, you have no excuse, either in your own copy of the Bible 
or in your smartphone or in the notes that have been distributed for you. The ideal, of course, is that you have this text before you now as it is read, and then as the text is referenced throughout the words that are following, the comments and reflections that I'm going to bring to you, ultimately, it's this text that I want to shape, form, and inform the life, work, and witness of each one of us and of this church and of the university of which I'm a part. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Give ear, for the text that I'm reading is God's word. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menion, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. God of all grace, grant us, I pray, this grace. That through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, rekindle our hearts, and strengthen our wills. Grant us this grace, we pray, for we ask it in the name of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Is not just any text in the book of Acts. In many respects, it's a pivot text. For you see, up until this point, up until you come to the end of chapter 12 of the book of Acts, there's a very real sense in which missionary witness evangelism, the growth of the church, really emerged out of the city of Jerusalem. That is, Jerusalem was the hub, you might say. Jerusalem was the epicenter of the emerging church's witness and mission. If you wanted to kind of go anywhere, you were going to be sent there from Jerusalem. But what's intriguing is when we come to Acts chapter 13, something very fundamental shifts. Now suddenly we have not Jerusalem, but the church in Antioch going through, as you, as you saw, as you heard, a discernment process where they now were going to become a sending church, a sending agency, you might say. And what becomes evident is that while the first part of the book of Acts is the church in Jerusalem being the epicenter of global mission, now suddenly Antioch is the epicenter of global mission. Now they are the ones that are sending. They are the ones that are receiving reports. Jerusalem's not out of the picture. But something fundamental changes. And for what it's worth, the big change is this. That the church in Antioch, guided no doubt by Paul and, Saul, Paul and Barnabas, referenced in this text as Saul, but it's whom we know of as Paul, that they recognized that God was going to be bringing the gospel to Gentile people. Theoretically, at least in principle, I think the church in Jerusalem should have seen that and known that, but what is radically different is the church in Antioch saw something that the Jerusalem church did not see, and that that is that God was taking the gospel to Gentile people, and what ultimately it's going to mean is that they don't need to become Jews in order to become Christians. That all seems eminently obvious to us, but it was not so obvious to the early church. Indeed, for many people, if you were going to become ultimately Christian, first you needed to become a Jew, then you could become a Christian. But the church in Antioch, Paul had recognized this, of course, is that God was going to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and that they were going to become faithful followers of Christ in their own right. 
in the kingdom that is yet to come, since I suspect most of us in the room today are people who would be of Gentile identity and origin, when the kingdom that is yet to come, if you run into somebody sometime in the first 10,000 years there when you're in heaven, and you run into somebody and you ask, where are you from? And they say Antioch, and you ask, were you part of the church in Antioch back then? Well, thank you, because I'm here because of you. You're just saying. We need to be grateful to them. They had a vision to do something that was radically different, and they became, you might say, the new epicenter of global mission. So the epicenter of global mission had been Jerusalem, then it became Antioch, but by the end of the book of Acts, Antioch and Jerusalem, actually, are in the rearview mirror. Paul recognizes this, and it's evident in Acts chapter 17, 18, and 19 that Paul is on his way somewhere else, and where is he headed? Antioch and Jerusalem are in the rearview mirror, and Rome is clearly the new epicenter of global mission. He goes to Rome, and it's from Rome, and even the whole letter to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, is in anticipation that they are going to be the new epicenter of global mission. Paul anticipates that from Rome, he's going to be going to Spain. As far as we know, he never got to Spain. Nevertheless, by the end of the book of Acts, and indeed for the next number of centuries, Rome became the epicenter of global mission. For those of us like myself, clearly of British descent, I look back to Gregory the Great, who from Rome sent the first missionaries to the British Isles, or what we know of now as the United Kingdom, at least tentatively, until the end of this month, it's the United Kingdom. How long that will happen, we will wait to see. I had to slip that in somewhere, but where was I lost? I I digress. Yes, right. (laughs) So far, the United Kingdom. I don't know if you're Scottish descent, you may be thinking the times they are changing, but it's coming. But anyways, back to my point. That is... Rome became the epicenter of global mission, and for the next number of centuries, every major missionary endeavor came from Rome. But by the 17th and 18th century, another major shift happened. And if you think back to that era, the vast majority of Christian missionaries in the 17th and 18th century came not from Jerusalem, not from Antioch, not from Rome but from what you might call the Iberian Peninsula, what we know of today as Portugal and Spain. The the largest missionary agency of that time was the Society of Jesus, what we think of as the, the, the Jesuits. Where were they from? Yes, they had their headquarters in Rome still, but the vast majority of their, of their missionary sending forth came, missionary sending force came from the Iberian Peninsula. And the evangelization of China, the evangelization of the Latin America, it all came from the Iberian Peninsula. By the 19th century, yet another major shift happens. And when you think of, if you were to read missionary biographies of missionary heroes in the 19th century, where are these missionaries coming from? The Hudson Taylors, the David Livingstons, are they coming from the Iberian Peninsula? No, now they're coming from the British Isles. That is, the 19th century was really the British century when it comes to Christian mission and witness, both within, uh, within the immediate region of the United Kingdom, but ultimately globally. The vast majority of missionaries in the 19th century were being sent from the British Isles. In the 20th century, another major shift happens. And indeed, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, with which this denomination is, with, with which this congregation is affiliated, was part of that movement. This denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, by the late 19th century, we see a shift happening, and an organization, a movement, a denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, emerges on the stage such that it is part of 
what is unequivocally the case that in the 20th century, the great missionary sending agencies of the world were not in Jerusalem, they were not in Antioch, they were not in Rome or the Iberian Peninsula or the British Isles. The vast majority of missionaries that were sent out in the 20th century came from this continent. My parents, for example, went to Ecuador. I grew up in Ecuador in South America. My parents were part of that movement. This assumption that we're going to reach the lost in the hardest parts of the world to reach and congregations of the Christian Missionary Alliance and of many denominations in this continent, in this continent, United States and Canada, were sending out missionaries and that was the assumption. We would sing even as a young person. We would sing to the regions beyond we must go. For indeed, Canada and the United States were part of, they, they were, you might say, past tense, notice, they were the epic. My wife and I were part of that. When in the early 80s, we went as missionaries to the Philippines, we went because we were going to do evangelism and church planting, and it was assumed that people from North America went to the regions beyond to do that. But even then, Joella and I knew, to quote that great poet, the times they are changing. Do you know who I just quoted? You've got traction and points in my world if you knew who that great poet was and still is, but it's Bob Dylan, for what it's worth, pressing on. We knew the tithe in the Philippines, that the Filipino church itself was emerging as a major force in global mission. We recognized that indeed we were involved, I was directly involved in a theological seminary that was training emerging missionaries, both for other parts of the Philippines, but also to go to Thailand and Southeast Asia and points beyond to the Middle East. Suddenly we realized we're not just here to kind of be the bringers of mission, we are here as catalysts for what is happening elsewhere. And what is emerging then, as we move into the 21st century, is more than one way in which the character of global mission is changing in fundamental ways. We recognize that back in the 1980s, it is most assuredly the case even now. And what I want to do is reflect with you this morning on what those changes seem to be, what many of us are recognizing, saying, as we look at the landscape, as we scan the horizon, what are the ways in which global mission is shifting now, like it has shifted in the past? How is, it being, how is that shift happening now? And then, as I said at the beginning, to ask the question, what implications does that have for you and me personally? And then, secondly, what implications does that have for us as a congregation? And then in dialogue with you, what implications does it have for a university like Ambrose University? I'm going to speak to three fundamental changes that it seems are happening all around us and on the horizon globally. First, and in one sense most fundamentally, the epicenter of global mission is shifting yet again. As I indicated back in the 1980s, and Joel and I were in the Philippines, we knew then that there wasn't a deep logic for North American churches to be sending evangelists and church planters to the Philippines. Why? Because Filipinos themselves were giving leadership to that very agenda, and we were involved in training evangelists and church planters, both for the Philippines and beyond. We knew, we saw, we felt, we observed that God was raising up Filipinos to do the very work that previously had been done by North Americans. That is, what's happening is that the epicenter of global mission is shifting to the, what we might speak of as the global south, China, Korea, India, or the southern cone, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile. How deeply moved I was 
18 months ago in Toronto, listening to Michelle and Murray Dirksen, who are the regional directors for the Christian and Missionary Alliance for Latin America and, and Central and Latin America, as they told the story of their work with the elders and leaders of the church in, of the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Chile, who felt particularly called in Venezuela. They were saying, the Chilean church was saying, this is our file, this is our responsibility. And the realization of, of Michelle and Murray Dirksen that our work as Canadian leaders is to support, encourage, train maybe, mentor them, but they're the ones that are actually going to do the work. And it epitomized for me this fundamental change that is happening. Rather than Chile just being a recipient of our witness, they're now the ones that are actually making this happen. As was mentioned in the introduction, before I came to Ambrose University, I worked for an agency called Resource Leadership International. That work involved my going regularly to the city of Hanoi. And in the city of Hanoi, we were part of, I was privileged to be part of, the reestablishing of a Bible college, the Hanoi Bible College, that had been closed by Ho Chi Minh in 1952 and was reopened then in 2012. And last year, there were 92 students at the Hanoi Bible College, all of whom have a sense of call to be involved in witness to the highland regions of Vietnam. And I remember, I have this uh, coffee shop remembrance at the Joma Coffee Shop just off Church Street there in Hanoi. I'm enjoying a coffee that is produced by the Highland, by Highland Beans. Jonathan Blair, Canadian, runs this coffee shop. I love it. A coffee shop is the sign of God's grace in my world. Any church that breaks halfway through worship for a coffee break is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. It's just a very cool thing. And then when they announce, and you can bring your coffee back into the sanctuary, that was very cool. Anyways, I just think that's a, that's a cool, anyway, where was I? I digress again. I'm in this coffee shop, and I hear this couple behind me, confused, perplexed, wondering what's going on, and finally I just turn and introduce myself, and who are you, and, and they're a couple from the United States, and they're there to do, and they've got two kids, and they're there to do evangelism and church planting. I talked to them some more, and I found out, well, actually, they don't speak Vietnamese. They're not there on a legitimate religious visa, uh, but this is what they're there to do. And they felt really compelled and called in order to do this. And I'm thinking, you know, just down the street from you is the Hanoi Bible College. And 90 students in the Hanoi Bible College, one, they all speak Vietnamese, just saying. Um, and they happen to all actually probably going to be doing witness amongst the highland peoples of Vietnam at much less cost than whatever it's costing to keep you in this country. And they're not going to get kicked out because they're Vietnamese. That is, they're not here on a business visa, even though they're not doing business, as was the case with this couple. You sense my furrowed brow. That is, the observation is often made that somewhere, I mean, I don't know how all these things are established, but that amongst the people of Vietnam, in the highlands of Vietnam, there are 15 unreached people groups. And they define that as a group of people for whom there's no significant Christian presence or witness. And there are 15 such groups in the highlands of Vietnam. Who's going to reach those people? Who's going to bring the gospel there? Who's going to establish faith communities there? Is it going to be Canadian couples or U.S. couples? I think theoretically that's possible. It's quite possible that you would be in decent there. Theoretically, in principle, it's possible. However, work with me here. Think about this for a couple of minutes. What are the odds of that being what God is calling you to do? It's possible, but why would God not bring the lowland Vietnamese who are so capable and gifted? I worked with these people, and I'm thinking, why would we, at such expense, why not go and support them in the work that they're doing? It, epi it epitomizes for me the shift, you might say, 
Again, in my upbringing, we assumed that that was going to happen from here. What I'm saying is the epicenter of global mission is shifting to the global south. The fundamental way in which those who do not yet know the gospel are going to hear the gospel is shifting. And we may not be the primary carriers of that. It behooves us to rethink then what does it mean for a church such as this one in the ways that, F, that, that the global mission is shifting and changing as a church and for a university like Ambrose University and Seminary. Secondly, another very major shift that is happening, and I observe this in Vietnam as well. During the day, I was involved in committee work and meetings and planning, recruitment involved in getting this established, getting established the Hanoi Bible College. But in the evening, every time I would go to Hanoi, I would line up these meetings. I would meet with educators who were teaching at Hanoi University, expats who were teaching in almost every major discipline at the Hanoi University, which is the intellectual hub for the, city, for the country of Vietnam. And I'm thinking, these are evangelical Christian believers who are scholars and teachers and mentors in engineering, in business, and almost every discipline at the university. Cool. Having dinner with them, seeing their sense of call to come to Vietnam to teach in the university system, and to realize, does the, pro, does the, does the government of Vietnam know what power comes through higher education and that you're in it? And then the next evening, I would meet with business leaders and executives from Europe, Australia, the U.S., and Canada, who had thriving businesses there. And one of them was Jonathan Blair, who ran the Joma Coffee Shop. And as, jo and, and as Jonathan told me one time, he says, we have 400 employees between our six franchises of Joma Coffee Shop. Every one of those employees is connected to anywhere between 15 and 25 immediate family members. Our impact through our business, he didn't put it shyly, is exponentially greater than any evangelist or church planter who comes to Vietnam. That is, what I observed there, and the next night, by the way, I would meet with people in media and the arts. What I observed then in my experience, and I'm convinced that this is emerging, is even as, as significant as anything that is happening in global mission today. When I was a child, when I was a young person, the assumption was this, that if you wanted to do the Lord's work, and my father can say that is a three-syllable word. I've never learned how to do it. The Lord's work. Uh, if you want to do the Lord's work, real work, the Lord's work is religious work. That is, it's the work of teaching and preaching the Bible and leading people to Christ and forming congregations. That's the Lord's work. And the farther you did that from Canada, the better. So, you know, kind of like if you really love Jesus, no, if you love Jesus, no, really, if you love Jesus, you'd be a pastor. But if you love Jesus a lot, like really a lot, well, then you'd be a missionary. And if you love Jesus even more, then you'd be a sacrificial missionary and you would go to the regions as far away as you could possibly go. And as a young person for me, that was Outer Mongolia. I don't know where I got that idea. But anyways, what I learned later on was that actually Outer Mongolia is closer to Canada than Mongolia. But that, uh, that, I didn't know that at the time. It just seemed like that was as far as you could possibly go. But we had this hierarchy that those who love Jesus the most become missionaries, the next are pastors, and then the rest of you... Well, you're not doing the Lord's work, but hopefully, yeah, this is serious, hopefully you're making enough money that you could give through your offerings. This is not funny. This is serious. You're, through your offerings, you can support those of us that are doing the Lord's work. That narrative is still in our DNA. Education and the arts 
are somehow not players in the kingdom purposes of God, quite like those of us, hello, like moi, who are doing the Lord's work. We urgently, it is just a matter of, of an urgency, an emergency. We need to get over this and recognize this extraordinary fact that indeed God is calling people into business, into education, and into the arts. And when God calls people into business and education in the arts, they're not just there to support those of us that are doing the real work. They are our colleagues in the kingdom purposes of God. Now, I paused there, uh, hoping for an amen. Uh, maybe at Okotoks Alliance Church, you don't amen, because it kind of throws off the momentum of the preacher. But if you were going to say amen, it would have fit in there very nicely. If I can just work with me here, work with me. So at Ambrose University... I walk the halls of the university. I do this as kind of a spiritual exercise. And we have the arts, Ambrose Arts, music, theater, and dance. We have the education program, the faculty of education program, which up till this year was number two in the province in placement in the public schools and private schools of this province, second only to UofL. I'm not competitive, but just observing. This year, 100% of our graduates are placed in four boards of education in southern Alberta. Is that cool or what? It's cool, whether you know it or not. And then we have the business program that at the end of November, middle of November is going to be running the Soul of the Next Economy Forum. That is, I walk the halls, and yes, we have humanities, which I, my own degree was in history. I revel in what the humanities profs and teachers are doing. Our behavioral science program is placing people in 60 different social agencies here in southern Alberta. And when we have our job fair for all of these social aid, we like your grads within our social agencies. That is, we have a science program, and we opened this week a new chemistry lab. It was just the coolest moment. I was in, I was in euphoria in there. And you say, Gordon, you don't look euphoric, but this is me euphoric. This is, just, <laughs> this is me maxed out. I, this is this spectacular new lab for our science program. But as, any, as much as anything for me, the touch points are the artists, music, theater, dance, the educators who are going to be, for some of them, the only Christian that's teaching in a public school in southern Alberta. The business person who's resolved to have a multi-valued approach to the production of goods and services. These people are going to be my colleagues in the kingdom purposes of God. And the, the fundamental change is something that Mark Jones, another of the Christian and Missionary Alliance regional directors, but he's the regional director for Southeast Asia, when he comes to our campus, I tease him. When you come down the hall towards our prayer chapel, I wonder, are you going to be turning right or are you going to be turning left? Because if you turn right, it's our ministry faculty. If you turn left, it's our business faculty. And of course, he talks to both of them. And what's emerging under Mark's leadership in Southeast Asia is people called into business who want to work internationally as entrepreneurs, as innovators, establishing businesses that will have indeed a profound social impact not somehow just to justify doing real work, but as colleagues with those who are involved in evangelism and church planting. It is a simply spectacular time to be alive and to be asking the question, what on earth is God doing? And for those of you, every time I preach in my imagination, I'm picturing who are the artists here, the dancers, the musicians, the visual artists, the sculptors, the architects, who amongst us are the people involved in teaching in the public and private schools in southern Alberta? Elementary, secondary, tertiary universities. Who this morning are involved in business and commerce? 
And to have, may God grant us all the grace, some sense of the weight these people carry because they are crucial bearers, you might say, of the kingdom purposes of God as it is for all of us. But I see those three as particularly pivotal. And if that's your call, please know, I see you as a colleague. You're a peer. And please know that at Ambrose University, Ambrose Arts, the business program, the education program, the School of Ministry, the Theological Seminary, each one of these is equipping and empowering people for the kingdom purposes of God in our day. Again, the amen would have fit very nicely right there. But I guess I have to give you the nonverbal. I have to lean slightly forward or something. Push me back with an amen. Thirdly, another major change that is happening in global mission today, simply breathtaking. As I mentioned, I grew up in Ecuador in South America. We would have, my parents were missionaries, we would have every five years we would do what was called furlough. They call it home ministry assignment now, but we would call it furlough. My father liked the word furloughing because he loved furlough. Would love to come back every five years and spend a year visiting with the Christian and Missionary Alliance churches and soliciting prayers and support for their work in, first in Ecuador and then later my parents were transferred to Mexico. When we came home to Canada, we would typically visit, spend that year in Belleville, Ontario, where my mother had grown up and where my grandmother lived. And while we were there, we would worship at the Alliance Tabernacle. I still cringe a little bit at that building being called the Alliance Tabernacle. And indeed, the very first Alliance Church in southern Alberta was the Alliance Tabernacle in Calgary on 17th Avenue and I forget what the cross street is. Uh, you know, and I say to people from other denominations, you called your church a tabernacle? I say, you know, you got your issues, you deal with your issues. You know, this is, is kind of like our stuff, but we're, we don't call it that anymore, and, and rightly so. But we worshiped the, at the Alliance Tabernacle. The Christian and Missionary Alliance congregation that worshiped in that building has since moved to the outskirts of Belleville, and now they're the Quinty Alliance Church. That church building was sold, and it is now a Muslim mosque. If you come visit Ambrose University and you take, you don't drive there, but you take the light rail transit out to Ambrose, the CT, the light rail transit, leaves from downtown Calgary, and if you take the light rail transit out, you'll know, you, you know if you've been on that train line, you know that sometimes the stations are above ground and sometimes they're below ground. So you kind of go up and down until you get out to 69th Street, which is a below ground station, which is the st- station you would get off and by the way, get off because it's the last station. The station you would get off in order to come visit Ambrose University. Before you go underground at the 69th Street stop is a mosque. When I was an undergraduate back in the 1970s, I think we vaguely knew there was a mosque somewhere in Canada. But we would have had no idea where it was. We never talked about it. We just assumed this is fundamentally a Christian country. And if there's religious structures and buildings and facilities, there are Christian structures, facilities and buildings. But mosques? Now, every one of our students knows where there's a mosque. Every one of you knows where there's a mosque. That is, one of the things that has emerged in the 21st century is that countries like Canada, and Canada has the most generous and extraordinary immigration provision of almost any country in the Western world, is that now the world is coming to Canada. That is, through the immigration policies of this country, in a Christian nation, if we ever were, we're unequivocally now a pluralist nation. And that is that now, every one of us now, on any given day, whether we're nurses in the local hospital, whether we're teachers in the local public school, whether we're running a business, either in Okotoks or High River or Calgary, 
We have people, some of whom are nuns, have no religious identity, but many of you, many of you are working with people of Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh identity. That is, it's now taken for granted, and rightly so, I would say, that we live now in a nation that is religiously plural, that while there may have been a time in which we would sing to the regions beyond we must go, now the regions have come here. And my question is this, could it be actually that this is providential? Could this actually be of God? When I was a young person in the Belleville Church, we were praying that God would send missionaries to Saudi Arabia. God never answered that prayer. Saudi Arabia was one of the most closed countries ever and still is. But that building was bought with Saudi money. Now they are coming here. And I never quite get it then when I visit the Queen Alliance Church and they wring their hands and woe is us. Can you imagine? We have a mosque now here in Belleville as though everything's going downhill. Civilization was lost. And um, uh, this is a very bad thing. And now they're moving into the neighborhood, these Muslims. And oh, Gordon, this is a bad thing. And I'm thinking, you were okay to send missionaries as long as these people were like a far away. But now, could it be that God has brought them into the neighborhood? Could it be now that we're not just going to be equipping women and men to evangelize Muslims on the far side of the Atlantic or the Pacific? Could it be now that all of us need to learn what it means to be witnesses for Christ in word and deed, in all that we say and all that we do, to those who now are our neighbors? Could it be that God is bringing the world to Canada? No country, it seems to me, is so brilliantly located to embrace the very ways in which the, work, the, the, the character of global mission is shifting. There's something, in my last job too, I'm in and out of Cuba quite a bit. Cuba is going to be a huge player. Within, I mean, within the next two, uh, 10 to 20 years, Cubans are, are they're, they're, they're entrepreneurial, they're clever, they're smart. As Cuba opens up, Canada is positioned to come alongside and support and equip Cubans and Chileans and others to do the very thing that they're called to do. They're going to be the frontline people. But Canadians bring a certain sensibility that I revel in. We're not here to kind of tell you how to do it. We're going to come alongside and encourage you in doing what you know how to do and probably know how to do better than ourselves. We're uniquely positioned in business and education and the arts to be partners together in the kingdom purposes of God. And this country is uniquely positioned. Thursday afternoon, I was out for the installation of the new president of uh, Trinity Western University, and as a spiritual practice, I drive down Number 5 Road in Richmond, B.C. If you've ever not driven down it, if you're ever out that way, drive down Number 5 Road, you go by a Sikh temple, a Buddhist temple, a, Buddhist, uh, um, a Hindu temple, a mosque, a Jewish learning and community center, and the future of Canada. Give me the sensibilities, O oh Lord, to embrace this reality. It's not just in Richmond, it's going to be happening across Canada. Last year, to be preaching in Owen Sound, Ontario, 15,000 people, little, you know, little Owen Sound. And on the way to the church in the morning where I'm going to preach, I drive by the mosque, little Owen Sound. And I want to say, what huge opportunities are opening up for us by virtue of what God is doing? Can we do this? Can we respond to what God is doing, both in Canada and globally? We need to do it in a way that may the Antiochian church encourage us. That is, the Antiochian church is discerning, so what on earth is the Spirit doing? And then I cannot but commend them with the extraordinary courage with which they set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which they were called. I'm also struck by this. Paul knew that this is what he was called to do, but he still seemingly took it to the church in Antioch, 
And then even after that, was still accountable to the church in Jerusalem for the work that they were doing evangelizing the Gentiles in Asia Minor. That is, we don't do all of this independently and alone. There's a very real sense in which we do it in intentional response to the Spirit. We're asking the question, how is the Spirit of God calling you, calling this congregation, calling this university, Ambrose, to participate in the kingdom purposes of God? And then we do it in a way that is intentional and accountable. And I, what I want to commend to you is the grace to do that. Can we do it? If we can, it's because we get over one thing in particular. The greatest threat to the church is not external to us, but internal. The greatest threat to the church is not immigration. The greatest threat to the church is this. Will we have the courage to be who we are called to be? Or will fear, anxiety, and worry keep us from embracing God's purposes in our day. Which is why I say that every time we gather for worship, we've got to lower the anxiety level. We need to leave with our anxieties a little bit suppressed. You're saying, well, shouldn't they be gone? Yes, but in my case, I'm a better, I'm an anxious person, so I just want to suppress them. No. I want to grow in my capacity to live with grace and courage for such a time as this, to quote the book of, Acts, the book of Esther, pardon me, to be all that we are called to be in this time and in this place. Okotoks Alliance Church, God bless you. Thank you for the extraordinary privilege to address you on this special occasion. May God bless and keep you, and may you flourish both individually and corporately as you participate in the purposes of God in our day. Amen? Amen. <laughs>